Uh, thank you so much, worship team. Great, great time of worship this morning, and thank you for that final song there as well about what we believe, a great kind of creedal song about what it is that we say we believe. I appreciate you guys leading us in that. And so what we believe is really important, I think, and we're here in this series called To Die For, part two of a 150-part series that we're doing. Um, just kidding. Ten-part series in three movements, in three acts, okay, in three pieces. We're in the first movement of it, the second part of ten, uh, called To Die For. And we want to talk today about belief and this idea that I, what I believe and the importance of belief. I don't know if you thought about the significance of what you believe about things, but think about it this way. There's, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a presidential process going on. Has anyone caught that in the news cycle, okay? And in the, the middle of that, there are people who believe in their candidate and would hope that their candidate gets into the Oval Office. And your belief, now I might believe that all the candidates exist. I, I believe that. You know, they all exist. But I may not believe in all of the candidates, okay? Now if I believe in the candidate versus just believing they exist, my behavior changes and fundamentally, I'm all of a sudden different, right? Like if I believe in candidate A, I all of a, start, all of a sudden start making kind of you want to believe in candidate A as well. You, know, you get how that works. This works in your talents and your gifts that you have. Some of you have children. Some of you are in school right now, and you have the gift. You have a voice in which you can just sing beautifully. And somewhere along the line, someone told you, you know what? If you kept working, I could see you going to nationals with your voice. All of a sudden, like, whoa, like I knew I could sing, but now I believe in myself in a different way because someone believes in me, and because they believe in me, now I'm going to change the way that I behave. I'm going to practice more, rehearse more, right? look for better vocal teachers. I'm going to do things differently because of what I believe. And so our belief, we know this, right? Our belief about things changes our behavior in the world. That's just normal. Now, Here's why I say that, that your belief about Jesus changes your engagement with him and with his church. So if you believe that Jesus exists, like you might believe the presidential candidates exist, that's one thing. But if you believe Jesus is all of who he says he is, that is a totally different thing. Totally different thing. Now, we've talked about last Sunday as we got into this series called To Die For, that we're really trying to pick up a conversation about our, our faith in light of the book of Hebrews. And in this little book of Hebrews, this author is writing, we believe, from a pastoral perspective who sees a people who are new believers, who are just one generation away from seeing Jesus Christ walk the planet and come to life, one generation removed. They've gone through persecution, their property has been confiscated, they've been abused, some have been imprisoned, and some are like, ah, I used to believe that Jesus was coming back, but it's been so long now. I used to believe that he would hear my prayers, but my mama died and my uncle is sick and my business isn't going well. Like, I used to think that I could find a spouse if I believe, but now it hasn't quite worked in that way. And these are people that the author of Hebrews is writing to and saying, hey, come on, do you believe or don't you? Because here's what we realized, we talked about this last week, that when hope isn't realized, disillusionment is. When hope doesn't become realized in us, disillusionment is. And this is why the author of Hebrews um, writes this in Hebrews chapter 10, 39. He says this, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. He's kind of reminding them, listen, this is who you 
are. If you say you believe in Jesus, you're not of the people who when things get hard or when God seems silent or you go through a season where you feel like you're going through the motions, you are not of the people who shrink back and are destroyed. Like that is just not what Christians do. You're on the team, right? If you're on the team, this is not how our team functions. Like, come on, work with me. It's kind of what he's saying, kind of a pastoral appeal to these people who he's writing to, just like, come on, guys. This is what we believe. And then he begins in the opening section of his letter that he's writing to this church. He begins by saying, let me remind you who Jesus is. Like, he's the image of the invisible God. He's the exact representation of his being. Like, this is who you worship. This is who you claim to worship. God himself. And here's what we said last week. That if it's true that Jesus is God, then it means something. And here's how we finished last week. We went to C.T. Studd and said this. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. That C.T. Studd, the famous English cricketer, said, if this is the deal and Jesus is God, that means something. That means something to me, and it's God means something to us. If he's actually God, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Now, over time, over time, belief starts to slip sometimes, doesn't it? If we're honest, okay? If your vocal teacher told you you can make nationals sometime and you don't even make the cuts for districts, it's like, I don't know. If your coach tells you, I believe this team can make the, the state championship and you guys don't even make the playoffs. Like, uh, I don't know. If someone says, hey, Jesus died and came back to life and you believe in him and you're going to have hope and you're going to have courage and faith and all of a sudden you don't have courage or faith and you feel like, hmm, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Is he really who he says he is? Does this coach really know? Does this vocal teacher really know? Is there really hope? And this is why the author of Hebrews is going to say it is very important what you believe. And here's how he writes in chapter 2, verse 1. He says this, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. So after chapter 1, where he lines out, Jesus is God. He's the exact representation of his being. Then he's like, hey, just a warning, kind of warning shot across the bow. Be careful. Pay attention. Pay attention to what You've heard, so that you don't drift away from it. I don't believe that he's talking about drifting away from salvation, like that all of a sudden they won't be saved anymore, but I just think he means like you're going you're gonna to drift from belief that Jesus is who he says he is. You're going to drift from a conviction, and honestly, it's going to be appealing to just walk away. And it's also going to be appealing to go through, as we talked about last week, the motions. It's going to be appealing to kind of, mail it in sometimes and just kind of show up for church. It's just going to be appealing. That's just the way it's going to be. Okay, And so he's saying to you, listen, come with me, come with me. Pay attention to what you have heard so that you don't drift away. And here's an important thing we said last week. If we start drifting, if we start going through the motions, no next generation ever has been motivated by people who go through the motions, right? Ever. No next generation ever is like, look at that terrible marriage, I can't wait to be married. 
Like, look how pathetic they are in relationship to other. That's not a motivating. Like, those people who have lost their passion and conviction for faith, I can't wait to go to church all my life. Like, no one does that. No one is motivated by people who are passionless and have no conviction. And so the author's just got a warning shot. Hey, it's easy to start believing less over time. It's easy to let the sandpaper of life kind of edge, you know, take that edge off of you and just wear you down and stop believing so distinctly. Stop believing all that. We're going to wear you down with trials and tribulations and struggles and we're going to kind of grate against your belief. He said, listen, it's important to pay attention to what you've heard. And remember, you're just one generation in this day. You're just one generation removed from what you heard about Jesus. Don't give it up. It's not who you are. So this morning, I simply want to do one thing with you. I want to convince you if I can, I want to at least present to you and allow you to engage. But I want to, if I could, I'd want to convince you that Jesus is not only God, but it's more than that. Not greater than that, but more than that. That Jesus is God, but he's also human. Fully human. In everything that we mean when we say the word human, Jesus is fully human. Now you may sit here this morning, you may think, that's fine, I agree with that, can we pray and be dismissed? I mean, it's easy. Or you might be like, I don't know if that makes any sense, because how can God, human, like, I don't know. This morning we're going to engage on both, but we need to be careful on what we heard, because what we believe about Jesus it matters. It's not just believing that the presidential candidate exists. We're going to ask you to believe something about Jesus that is very, very important. That he's fully God and that he's fully man. So, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. We are in chapter 2 of Hebrews, and we're going to be in verses 14 to 17 this morning. By the way, if you don't own a Bible, I'd invite you to, uh, to grab a Bible in the pew around you. That is our gift to you if you don't have one. All right, there you go. Free Bible this morning. You're welcome to have that. Take that with you and, uh, and, and read that. We believe in the scriptures and the power thereof. And I also want you to see that, that what I'm commenting on this morning um, is right there in God's Word, not just something that I'm creating or pulling out of thin air. Okay? Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to just drop it in, verses 14, really, to 17 this morning. And, and, and go almost phrase by phrase here. Okay, So here we go. I'm reading from the New International Version. Um, and, and the author begins here in verse 14 saying this, Since the children have flesh and blood. Now, this morning I'm going to pause it and interact with my phrases kind of bit by bit. So I want to stop it there for just a second. Since the children have flesh and blood. Number one, we have to figure out who we're talking about. Who... who this is weird. The children only have flesh and blood, or the adults? Do they have flesh and blood, or is just the kids in the room? Yeah, I think, I think we all you know, have flesh and blood, right? So here, it's a very interesting opening, because the idea here is that God is referring to, or is, humanity is referred to as the children of God. So you have to ask the question, if we are God's children, how does a loving father interact with his children? Lovingly. I mean, like it is a term of endearment. So we are seen in our humanity, first of all, by God, even in this case, as people who both need love and direction. And here we go. God's way of viewing us. A good father comes and sees us. We're children. We have flesh and blood. Since the children, that is the people we made, the children of humanity, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. What? Is, what, what's he saying? Uh, stop it here for a minute. He too shared in their humanity, and this is where it gets funky in a hurry. 
Like, what does that mean? God, through Jesus, who we talked about last week, is fully God. And at the beginning of chapter 1, this author is saying he's fully God. Like, he's the image of the invisible God. He's present before creation. Now, he shared in their humanity. What does this mean, that he shared in their humanity? How is that possible? How do you take God, who is omniscient, knows all, omnipresent, exists everywhere, omnipotent, all-powerful, and how do you shove that into humanity, in which we are not omnipresent, we are not omniscient, and we are not omnipotent? I mean, how do you do that? What does that mean to share in the humanity? What, how does that even work? Like, like isn't it said there in, in, um, in the Gospels related to Jesus that he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man? Like that? Okay, so in other words, how does God grow in wisdom? Well, you don't know it all? Like, no, you know it all. You're, you're God, right? Like, you don't grow in wisdom. You don't grow in stature because you're going to get bigger. I mean, you're God, right? Like, how, do you, how does this work that the humanity, the full-on humanity of Jesus, in which he grew in wisdom and in stature, mixes with a God element in which he knows everything. Like, how can you create the world and by your power, your word, sustain it, and then come into the world and weep for it and cry for it and learn from it as well? I mean, what in the world are we talking about? He too shared in their humanity? That doesn't work. I mean, maybe I think conceptually, maybe if I was raised in church, I think, sure, Jesus is fully God and fully man. But I'm asking you this morning to hit the pause button and maybe go deeper on that and really wrestle with, do you actually really believe this? Because this is a big deal. How does a God-like figure with all the elements of deity get mashed into humanity? How does it even work? And should we even talk about sin? Who among us here this morning or listening online later would ever be able to say, in my humanity, I'm free from sin? None of us would be so arrogant to say that. And yet, here's this comment about Jesus. He shared in our humanity. Well, can God sin? Of course, God can't sin. Well, did Jesus sin in his humanity? That doesn't sound right either. Like, I don't think Jesus ever sinned. So I don't think he really shared in humanity, because sin is such a part of my human experience, isn't it? Like, aren't our minds impacted by sin? Isn't our will and our, our struggle engaged with, with sin and the struggle against sin? Aren't our bodies sometimes impacted by the result of sin? Like, in our full totality of humanity, like we are impacted by sin, and he too shared in our humanity? I mean, we're talking, is Jesus fully human or not? That's what we're trying to talk about this morning. Is he full-on human? Or is it just like he's kind of human? Like he's mostly human. He looked like a human, but he was like a cyborg underneath. Okay? He wasn't really human. Like a, he had some kind of, like, is he really full-on human in every way that we mean human, human? You know, what's that about? Now, if you've been here before, you know, um, here's what I have to say about sin. I'm going to answer this, and then we're going to keep going, because we're going to ask this, we're going to try to answer this question further. Um, Related to sin, you know that there are people uh, in the Bible even who were human, fully human, but did not sin. So we know that sin is not an essential part of humanity. Sin is an experience we have on this side of the fall, but Adam and Eve were real people before they sinned. 
sin exists outside of, excuse me, humanity exists outside of sin. In other words, sin is not an essential part of humanity. Sin is being less than human, not human. It's very important. The essence of humanity is the image of God, not the sinful mark in our souls, in, in our bodies, in our minds. That sin comes later, but doesn't come as an essential part. So it's still possible. Jesus can share in what it means to be human and not sin. But we're going to talk more about how does the omni stuff jam into that? And is this even possible? Because this phrase comes so quickly and easily as if it's nothing. So he shared in our humanity. Sure he did. To what degree? In what way? And how does that even work? Continue to read there with me, if you will. Verse 14. So he shares in our humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Big, big section here. It appears that in sharing of his humanity, this was necessary for him to do what he was supposed to do at death that he needed to share in the humanity of what we experience in order to do what he needed to do at death. So Jesus' death destroys not just death. Do you see that there in the last part of verse 14? That by his death he might destroy, and what's that next word? It's good, just one at a time so we're not confused. So that by his death he might destroy him. Him, yeah. So that by his death he might destroy him, who holds the power of death. So this is not just Jesus' death destroying something. This is Jesus' death impacting and destroying someone's power. It's important for you to see that. He's destroying him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and then free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. So at his death, a full human dying, full God dying, in that moment he destroyed one and freed a bunch. He destroyed the devil's power and freed everybody. He destroyed the power of Satan to hold over humanity the intimidation of death and freed us all. Now think about this. What do you do if you're a slave to something that is a uh, merciless master? And this is death. This is the image here that, that is being used. He freed those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Think about the impact of that for a minute. That, that death has become a slave master to humanity, and it's almost as if we are uh, just having to give this obedience to death. Yes, death, we will serve you. And what does that create within the slave? It creates a hopelessness. Every now and then I experience that, and you probably do too if you're honest. You ever dealt with the Monday morning blues? You ever dealt with discouragement or depression beyond that? sometimes clinical depression. All right? You ever dealt with that reality? You ever dealt with times where you're just like, I don't know if this is worth it? Because you know what death does and sin, living in a sin-cursed world does? Is it steals hope of a future. Because if all there is is death, and if the end of life is just death, to what end should I pursue excellence? To what end should I pursue creativity? To what end should I pursue anything? To what end? You're going to die. Well, we need to do it for the next generation to hand off the planet to the next people. Why? So that they can die too? Like, that's not enough. We're just kicking the can down the road to the next generation. The answer isn't. It's not enough. It's not enough to bear the weight of my soul. I can't just 
live creatively and with excellence to hand off a great planet to the next generation. No, it's not enough. If everyone is going to die and death is the end of man, I have, my hope, joy, and life has been stripped from me and I have nothing really to live for. This is why when Jesus dies, he destroys the power of the one who holds the keys to the power of death and says, death is no longer to intimidate you. The future that you have is not the grave, but is life everlasting. And so what little you invest here will be magnified in the future. The reason that you excel, the reason that you try, the reason you're creative is because it's an expression of God's image who will, you will worship forever. Like there's just one little piece of an existence that will continue forever. And so in that death, the full humanity and deity of Jesus rips from and destroys the power that Satan has over death and gives to all of us a freedom over discouragement, a freedom over disillusionment, a freedom over uh, forlorn, you know, give it up, throw it away, who cares kind of life. Like that's just what Jesus' death does, full humanity, full deity. And then verse 16, he writes, for surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. <laughs> like, in other words, like, surely you didn't think that Jesus was here just for the spiritual powers, right? Like, you didn't think he was here just to help angels. Like, they're fine, they're fine. You guys need help, okay? Like, they're fine, you need help. That's the way it is. God knows that. And notice, we just kind of take it for granted, but notice the language, the verb is to help, okay? Like, Jesus has come to help. Just a reminder, if you're coming and you think that God somehow has condemned the world, a reminder of John 3.17 is important. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Like The orientation of God to his children is loving and helpful Father. So that God has come to help us. Okay? He's come to help us. He's come to help Abraham's descendants who have flesh and blood. And in order to help us, for this reason, verse 17, for this reason he had to be made like his brothers, in every way. Now let's get back to this question that I asked earlier. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. Does this really mean that Jesus is fully human? Like in every way. Okay. Now I've already talked about sin is not human. It's our experience with humanity, but it's not how God designed it. So I, I have that category easily, that sin is... Creates less than humanity rather than more than, but in other cases, is, this, is Jesus actually come on fully human? And does this even matter, or does it just matter that I believe in a Jesus? Yeah, he existed. Whatever. What do I need, really need to believe? This is a difficult, difficult concept to get around. And for a long time after Jesus walked the planet, for the next several generations, even in the time of the writing of Hebrews, church leaders wrestled with this issue. They struggled to communicate this clearly. They were like, ah, I think, I think um, we talk about Jesus being more godlike because that's important. We want to protect his deity. And other people reacted to that and like, ah, I think we need to talk about Jesus being more human because that protects his relevancy to us. So some people were like, listen, he's fully God and he took on the shell of humanity. Okay, like he just looked like us, but underneath, like he was still God. He wasn't fully us because there's no way that omniscience and omni everything can fit into humanity. And that kind of was taking the day for a while. Like, that sounds really good because we should protect his deity. That's really important. And yeah, he can't be everything like us. There's just no way. A church leader in the fourth century uh, named Gregory 
uh, he had, I don't know if he had a last name, but we called him Gregory of Nazianzus, or Nazianzus. Isn't that kind of neat? Kind of little thing. Here's what Gregory had to say in the fourth century. He said this, what is not assumed is not healed. In other words, if Jesus looked like us, but didn't assume our humanity, we're not fully saved. Like if my mind is impacted by sin, and my will is impacted by sin, and my body is impacted by sin, if that's all true, and Jesus didn't assume the human mind, the human will, and the human body, then my mind or my will or my body, whatever he didn't pick up, is not saved. Like what has not been assumed is not healed. Like there has got to be a full-on totality of, of Jesus becoming fully human in order for me to be fully saved. Then everyone was like, ooh, that's really wise, Gregory. That's really smart. Like, that's a good idea. And so then there was this kind of movement over here of like, ooh, we really need to talk about Jesus' humanity. That's really important. Yeah. We really... And the way to talk about his deity was almost like, hmm, we don't know how that worked because how could he grow in wisdom and still be God? Like, that doesn't make sense. So it must be like Gideon. Like, oh, and there's a story in the Bible in the Old Testament about Gideon that the Spirit of God came on with power on Gideon. Yeah, that, that must be what it's like, that Jesus was fully human. Okay, fully human, we got that. And then the Spirit of God came on him and just lived with him forever. That must be what it's like, right? I mean, that's got to be the way it is. No, it, it's not. Because now we don't actually have Jesus as fully God. We have Jesus kind of occupied or controlled by God, but not himself God. We don't have a trinity. We have a real problem. And so for a while, people were like, hmm, I don't know. I don't know. People were looking around in the church and saying, I don't know, for hundreds of years. Like, I don't know how to solve it. Just kind of like my brain explodes at the idea of, I don't, know, I don't even know. How do you bring God and man together? Mm, I don't know. In fact, it became such a big deal that finally around 451 AD, there was another council called last week where we talked about the council of Nicaea. This week, the council of Chalcedon said this, we believe that there are two natures. Without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. This language became the way that the Christian church from this point on has talked about how God is present in the person of Jesus and the humanity is present in the person of Jesus. In other words, we can't figure out how to say it positively, so we'll say it negatively. <laughs> like It's without Without confusion, it's not like these like it's somehow confused and he doesn't know who he is. Without change, it's not like you pour um, blue lemonade and yellow lemonade into Jesus and you get green lemonade, like it changes. It's not that kind of thing. There's, there's not this kind of third thing. Without division, they're not separate. Some might say, oh, Jesus was human uh, when he wept, but he was divine when he was walking on the water. And he flipped that off, and he became human again over here, and then he was divine over here, we need a miracle. And like, no, he's, that's a schizophrenic Jesus, okay? Like, that's not appropriate. We have Jesus without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. And then you say, well, how does that actually work? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't know. All that I can tell you is that somewhere along the line, Jesus willingly kind of gave up the, the, um, the choice set aside for a time the choice or the freedom that he had to be omni-everything. And we see that kind of sneaking through sometimes. Like he, We'll read in the Gospels that Jesus, already knowing what they were thinking, asked them, that's just not fair. It's not fair to be in a room with someone who knows what you're thinking. But Jesus, fully God, fully man at the same time. And 
since this moment, the church has really looked around like, I don't know how better to say it, so we're just going to say that. And that's what the church has said for a generation. This is why we say this, that if you want to believe something about Jesus, you can believe kind of whatever you want. But if you're going to call yourself Christian, then this is what Christians believe about Jesus. That he's fully God, fully God, and fully human, fully human. How does that work? All that we know is that there are two natures. Without confusion, change, division, or separation. This is the best language that we can make up to figure out. How does this actually work? Here's what the Bible continues to say in verse 17. He was made like us in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. You see that there? That In other words, why did this even happen? In order that two things, he could become a merciful and faithful high priest and that he could make atonement for the sins of the people. The high priestly uh, nature there is the humanity of Jesus. The atonement is the need to have a perfect sacrifice, the need for deity, the need for God to die, essentially. Theologians call this the transcendence and imminence of God, that God is transcendent beyond us and imminent near us. Okay, that's just the way that that works. So, here's where we go. As you wrap this all up, bring this down to the end of chapter 2. What does it mean that Jesus is fully human, and how do we interact with that? This is where, actually, Kevin is going to take us next week a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit about the implications of Jesus' humanity next week. But here's what we say. Jesus is fully God and fully human, both in the same. And here's how this works. Okay, Here's how this works. Here's why this matters. That if Jesus is fully God, I need to submit to him. This is where it starts. If Jesus is fully God, I need to submit to him. So this is where we were last week. If, if Jesus says things like, let me just take one. If Jesus says, love your enemies, that's God speaking, okay? Like that's fully God. I don't get the privilege of interacting with that at a peer level and arguing with that. Like that's God speaking. Like when Jesus speaks, God speaks. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He, he is God. And so I don't have the luxury of engaging with Jesus' teaching at a peer-to-peer level and fighting it. Like when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the meek and the poor in spirit, I don't have a, the right, I don't, I don't have any leverage to argue with God on what he teaches. Like I just need to submit down to that. When Jesus says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come back and get you. I might be like, I don't know, because it's been a long time. But I don't get the privilege of arguing with God at a peer-to-peer level. Like Jesus, if Jesus is fully God, then I need to submit to his teaching. 
It's almost like in the book of Job. Job, at the end of this, is kind of engaging with God a little bit, and God just puts him in his place. Hey, Job, you want to talk? Let's talk. Where were you? Remind me where you were when I set the foundations of the world. Can we talk then? Where were you when I set the seas in place? Were you around when I decided where to tell the seas to stop? If you were, let's talk. If not, how about I be God and you be Job? Can we do that? Okay. And this, in a way, is what's going on here, that if Jesus is God... I need to submit to him as much as I may not like that. This is why it matters what I believe about Jesus. But now here's the funny part. Here's kind of the flip part. If Jesus is fully human, I can relate to him. So let me play all those scenarios out one more time. If Jesus is fully human, Jesus says, love your enemies. Jesus, come on, let's talk about that. Can I, can I push on you about the Pharisees? Didn't you get mad at them? Come on, Jesus. Come on. You threw their temple uh, tables over. Remember that time? Like, how's that? Loving your enemies. Come on. Like, you can relate to the struggle, right? You've got to be kidding me. You're telling me to love my enemies? You have to have the feel that I have. This is impossible. I don't want to love my enemies. And Jesus is like, yep, I've been there. I'm fully human. Fully human? Yeah. Fully human. Wait, Jesus, blessed are the peacemakers. I don't feel like making peace. Like, I'm not even the one who started this conflict. Why should I be the one to make peace? I've been offended. They're a jerk. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. Why do I have to be the peacemaker? I get it. Yeah, I get it. I mean, I'm human. Yeah, let's talk. I mean, let's have the conversation. I'm a faithful and merciful, merciful high priest. I I get it. I'm with you. I'm tracking Wait, so Jesus, you're going to go and prepare a place for me, and you're going to come back and get me? Like, it's been so long. People really still believe that? They still believe trumpet in the sky, and people go, and woo, what happened? And, you know, planes dive into the earth, I mean, all that. I mean, is that what people still believe? Yeah, and Jesus would be like, yeah, it's been a long time, I get it. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about that. There's the timing on which my salvation, the timing on which things happened wasn't always my timing. You know, when I walked the earth, we had to talk to God about that. I get that, you know, I see that. And so here's Jesus, okay? What you believe about him is so important. If Jesus is fully God, I don't have the chance to fight what he teaches. I've got to submit to that. But if he's fully human, I can go to him and be like, this is hard. You've got to be kidding me. How can I? But I've got to submit. But this is, you had to, how do you? Uh. What you believe about Jesus is going to dictate, really, the quality and experience of your faith. And so you're going to get pushed on when you go to college by people who say Jesus is a teacher, or maybe not even a historical figure. You're going to get pushed on by peers around you who are like, you've got to be kidding me. You're, a, you're one of those Jesus people, really? Like, yeah, okay. Just got a little smirk, and you just kind of know what they mean by that statement. And almost the social disdain that comes from that. And so somewhere along the line, you might be tempted to just kind of mail in a little bit of the edge of what you believe about Jesus. And you might be tempted over time to believe less because your hopes haven't been realized. You might be tempted to kind of draw it down. And the author of Hebrews says, I know the struggle. But remember, we are not of those who shrink back 
and are destroyed. There are those who believe and are saved. With belief being set up as a courageous act of the will in the middle of what is easy. We believe where others shrink back. So this morning, if Jesus is fully God, I need to submit to him. And if he's fully human, man, I can relate to him. Next week in this To Die For series, Kevin is going to take us further with the implications of Jesus' humanity and help us understand even more about how we relate to this Jesus in his, the fullness of his humanity. We'd love to have you join us next week as well. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the time that we can share in your word here this morning. This is a, a struggle to get our mind around how a, the deity and humanity can work together in one person. And yet we know that there are implications for each. I pray that you would give us courage to act in line with what we know we need, with what we know we believe. Give us courage to be men and women, young men and young women who believe and are saved, who don't shrink back from difficult things, but that our belief about Jesus cannot be just a belief that he existed somewhere and he's a teacher or a moral authority or a historical figure, but that our belief about Jesus can be Christian, that he is fully God and fully man, that I need to submit to him and I can relate to him at the same time. Give us courage to believe that our faith can be life-altering, not just Sunday-altering. That the next generations will see what we believe and say that is something worth dying for. Help us where we are weak. We'll ask this in Jesus' name.